Welcome to this episode of Industries in Transition, a holistic look at the challenges, triumphs and lessons learned as businesses drive change to build a sustainable future. Hello and welcome to this special series. I'm your host, Manisha Tank, and in today's episode, we're exploring the adaptation economy. If you're wondering what that's about, we have a very knowledgeable guest to help us. Let's welcome Marisa Drew, Standard Chartered's Chief Sustainability Officer. Hey, Marisa, how are you? I am very well, thanks. Gearing up for Davos, given it'll be the first full Davos since COVID, we expect and hope a lot's going to get done. (laughs) Definitely. I think the whole world's with you on that because there is a lot that needs to be done. Conversations around climate change, they often focus on mitigation, how we can limit a rise in global temperatures by reducing carbon output. That's something that financial markets have been very focused on and a lot of net zero goals are very future focused. However, there is this other conversation that gets far less airtime, and I'm sure Maurice is going to agree, and the need for it is more immediate than anything. Anyone who's up to date with the headlines knows that melting glaciers, storm surges, and other extreme weather events are already hitting vulnerable communities around the world, and it's happening right now. A community losing a shoreline or precious water for farming, that is an issue that just doesn't have time to wait. There must be adaptation to survive, and then we have to adapt again to thrive. And that is why Standard Chartered has been looking at what investment is needed in 10 emerging and fast developing markets to help them adapt to climate change. Marisa, that's why we've got you here. You're going to walk us through this really interesting study that was done. Could you outline the distinction between mitigation and adaptation a bit better than I did? Mitigation is really the focus on reducing carbon emissions to hopefully stave off the effects of climate change as much as possible. And adaptation is dealing with the reality that climate change effects are here and now, as you so aptly say. There was this IPCC report, and that gave us some statistics, which frankly, they were quite scary. Perhaps you want to outline a little bit of what you gleaned from that report, but also how important those numbers were. For those who aren't familiar with IPCC, it's the International Panel on Climate Change. This is really a compilation of some 200 plus of the world's scientists that try to come together and agree collectively on the direction of travel. And the most recent IPCC report suggests that about 75% of the world's population will be experiencing life-threatening climatic conditions under the more pessimistic scenarios of emissions. The Paris Accord was trying to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And sadly, it looks like we're going to overshoot that. These sorts of extreme weather effects are going to hit people with a regularity that's 14 to 15 times what we've been experiencing over the last couple of decades. Extreme will become the new norm. The other thing that this report found is that about half of the world's population live in places that are highly, highly vulnerable to climate change. Most of these markets are in the developing world, and they often do not have the resources to deal with these extreme effects. We can't be letting the world's most vulnerable populations on their own. The world needs to act, and the sense of urgency is, is truly here at this, at this very moment. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a cost, isn't there, of doing nothing I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. We have commissioned a study that we're calling the Adaptation Economy, where we looked with a number of academics and climate modelers to see what the cost would be if we don't do anything. And there truly is a cost. 
over time, if we don't do anything, the cost of inaction will be many multiples of trying to deal with it today. If we do not invest the very bare minimum in 10 markets that we studied, which our study suggests would be about 30 billion in this decade for adaptation, the cost to these economies would grow by the end of that period to 377 billion. If we wait, the problem only gets bigger. Yep, absolutely. And this is really compelling, actually, the data coming out of this. Getting more into the study now, I'm just going to list those countries. You mentioned a few of them, Bangladesh, China, Egypt, India, Indonesia, Kenya, Nigeria, Pakistan, the UAE and Vietnam. Immediately, I think of Pakistan. It was in the news and it was devastation that we witnessed from all over the world. We saw it on our TV screens, right? What actually happened there and why is the conversation we're having right now so important given that context? That one single flood event in 2022 was the worst flooding in the country's history. It caused $15 trillion of damage and caused 1,800 deaths. And this is what we're talking about, the cost of not being able to manage through what is going to be an increasingly higher reality in our lifetime. I'm glad you brought up the fact that this is timely, because I just want to share a very quick personal story, which was 10 years ago, as a journalist, I was based in Hong Kong. I met someone who was running an NGO. It was all about water and the water crises that were affecting a number of economies around the world. And one of them that she highlighted to me was China. It has now emerged that China suffered its worst drought on record in 2022. This is another really good example of perhaps things which are right in front of our faces, but most people don't realize. Like you, I have a very personal story. I have a home in South Africa. And a couple of years ago, South Africa was going to be one of the largest cities to turn off its taps because of drought conditions that we had had over the preceding several years. When you actually face something like that at a personal level, you see how serious it is. And sometimes I think that humans are not wired to look too far ahead. And when it becomes a reality for you, then all of a sudden it creates that call to action. This is proliferating and you cannot wake up now any day without seeing a headline with some weather event that is the worst. We're seeing what's happening in Northern California. Tomorrow, it'll be another country or another city. This isn't going to go away. So here we are having our conversation. <laughs> Let's move on to some more of the learning from the study. What was the most surprising finding? I think it is just that how quickly the effects build up if you don't act. I think that's one of the key things. The cost and the multiplier effect by waiting. It is here, it is now. We know this intuitively, but translating those effects into monetary terms was an eye-opener for us. The investment required today, $30 billion in the next decade, is pretty small when we think about global capital flows in the trillions. If we were to do that now, then we avoid that 12 times multiplier that I referenced earlier about what it will cost us in future. When we polled over 150 institutional investors and asked them if this was on their radar screen and if any of their funds were allocated to climate adaptation, we found that the numbers were very, very low. We have got to collectively come together, put this topic on the agenda of the financial community so that we can create that call to action, get those dollars flowing and help us to help ourselves. Yeah. In fact, up ahead, we're going to talk a little bit more about how you do that. Digging a little bit deeper, if you looked at every dollar that was spent on adaptation this decade, what sort of economic benefit would be derived for those 10 markets? 
if we are able to put that money to work within the next 10 years in these footprint markets alone, that's about 30 billion US dollars, the cost avoided or disaster avoided would be 12 times that number invested. So think about this on ROI terms. It's very rare that you get a 12 times multiplier or return on any investment dollar, particularly in these times. It's very helpful, I think, for us to reframe the narrative that this isn't charity, this isn't only the purview of governments because it's a social or good thing to do. There's both an economic reality to the cost of inaction, but also there is a commercial proposition. And when we think about it in finance terms, there is a real return on those dollars invested. Well, we're investing in us, I think, you know. (laughs) We are indeed. (laughs) What better investment is there, really, at the end of the day? So that's based on a one and a half degree warming scenario, isn't it? But you are considering other scenarios. So if we were to think about a very, very severe scenario of three and a half degrees, those same 10 markets will be needing double the investment. So the investment requirement would go from 30 to 60 billion in order to just be in a position to do the bare minimum of adaptation. The compelling case is very much here to act now, don't delay. I might shock some people when I say this, but as a financial journalist and being being around the finance sector for such a long time, even if it was 62 billion, that's a drop in the ocean when you think of how much money is swishing around. So let's then talk about how Standard Chartered is actually acting on some of this. There is something that's come up time and again in COP discussions, for example, where can the investment actually come from? How do you funnel this money to where it's needed? for the first time, you had a global agreement to create something called a loss and damage fund. So this fund will go to help vulnerable communities and those that are going to be the worst hit by climate change to deal with it or to adapt. Sadly, that fund is only 230 million of pledges from the relevant governments. However, it is on the world stage. At Standard Charter, this is very much a core pillar. As the Chief Sustainability Officer, one of my core themes that we will be focusing on in the coming years is adaptation. It's starting with this report because we needed to frame the equation and make that investment case that we just described. Then we can use that as a basis for creating a common definition and language And we're doing that in partnership with organizations like the World Economic Forum, other financial services players, governments, and so on. And then when we come together and have a common set of standards, definitions, and principles, then we can begin to think about scaling markets. Something that's emerged during our Industries in Transition series has been this conversation around collaboration, this acknowledgement that you have to have a blended approach. It isn't just the public sector that's going to be able to solve these problems. It has to be a joined-up approach. How do you feel those sorts of conversations are coming along? I'm actually quite optimistic. Several years ago, I sat on an initiative called the Blended Task Force. And that whole idea was to bring together public and private sector actors to think about how do we collectively attack a problem. We were talking very different languages. And sometimes the assumption of what each party could bring to the table was very misguided. So it isn't just the purview of government. It isn't just something that the private sector can solve. We've got to do it together. Neither one of us has all of the answers. But when we come together in collaboration, you do create some very, very positive effects and you often can break down hurdles or silos. 
All right, let's pick up on better outcomes then. Tell us the story of Angola's water supply. This is so fascinating, and I think it's a great pragmatic example of what can be done. We're helping to support the country of Angola, which ranks 138th out of 140 countries in the world for the reliability of water. Angola faced one of the worst droughts in 40 years in the country in the year of 2022. Over a million people were facing water scarcity as a result of that drought condition. We worked together with the Minister of Finance of Angola to coordinate a very large financing, over a billion dollars, and it was in partnership with others, including the EBRD and other sort of concessionary actors, to create this fund that would invest in the production, the purification, the storage, transmission, etc., kind of a holistic solution about this water supply problem for Angola. We're very, very proud of the fact that through that investment, we will be improving access to water for over 2 million people. So this is a very real example of public and private with enabling conditions sponsored by a government, private sector capital could flow and attack a very serious problem that is helping really focus on the people equation that are affected by climate change. Yeah. Earlier, we were talking about how this has to be a job for everyone, right? That was the result of sort of government initiative. Do you have any examples of anything that's changed in a commercial context, any adaptation investment? Yes, the examples proliferate in terms of the commercial proposition on the purely private side. When an investment opportunity is born out of necessity, almost by definition, there's a commercial proposition. And this is what I mean about reframing the narrative. Many people think of adaptation, they think, oh, this is the job of the government. But if we think about it in different terms and say, well, if we're creating an opportunity to stave off that 12 times cost, that return on investment has real economic value, and that's where the private sector plays. In the UK, where I reside, I am really encouraged to see one of the largest home builders in the UK has a lab where it is experimenting with the house of the future. So this home is using sustainable building materials, but it is also being built with interesting technologies that are designed to withstand wild swings in heat and cold, and also being built with advanced materials to withstand high winds, and also be built in a way that can withstand sea level rise. So you think about that perfect home of the future, which is being designed today to adapt to what we project in the future is going to be a real issue. That's a massive commercial opportunity. Wouldn't that be the house that you want to buy? If we can produce a house like that, you can see the commercial reality for that for the private sector. So I'm very optimistic about these proof points and being able to prove to people that investment and adaptation has a real commercial return. So, Marisa, obviously this study threw up a great deal of data, insight, actionable information. And I'm sure that means that your team is very busy. What are you going to be focusing on in the year ahead? Well, because we need to invest dollars in both, our overall mission is to mobilize capital at scale 
to solve some of the world's biggest challenges. And there is no bigger challenge than a climate change equation. But equally, that climate change equation has very real effects on people. So we acknowledge that you can't separate the E from the S in ESG. We will make sure that as we go forward and we do try to facilitate the transition to a decarbonized economy, that we're investing in adaptation, which is so much part of the S equation, serving the people. So we will be focusing our efforts in both places because this is a little bit of a new theme that needs that recognition, needs airtime, needs definition, needs partnership. We will be putting adaptation very high on our agenda. And the way we're doing that is, in the first instance, raising awareness. Second instance is quantifying, as we're doing through the Standard Chartered Adaptation Economy Report. Thirdly is socializing this with potential partners and then finding those real projects, real investment opportunities where we can get stuck in and deliver the capital to help, again, solve this problem, this 3030 problem that we're talking about today. What sort of a mindset would you advise business leaders to uphold when they're trying to focus their attention on the adaptation economy? In the first instance, is looking at your own portfolio as a fund manager or financial services provider. How much is going to adaptation finance? One of the surprising facts from our study was really just how little capital there is, despite the urgency and the reality of what we're facing. We interviewed over 150 investors and found that only 0.4% of the capital of those participants was geared toward or directed toward adaptation. However, what we found is that more than three quarters of those we surveyed, and these are some of the world's largest banks, asset managers, and investors, do believe that climate adaptation finance has to become mainstreamed. And it's very much going to be on their agenda for 2023. So I'm quite excited about that. So I think that is the mindset shift that we were hoping to see and we're beginning to see. Can I just get your view, though, very quickly on that 0.4% stat? Why do you think that was so low? I think it's generally because there was a hope and a belief that if we put most of the world's capital to work in the climate equation towards mitigation, we could avoid the climate change problem. But the unfortunate fact is that the world continues to rise in terms of its global temperatures. And then all of those effects that we've been discussing are going to be hitting us. And now it's time to turn our attention to how do we make ourselves more resilient? How do we adapt? So finally, I'd like to ask you, Marisa, a bit more of a personal question. What drives you? You are clearly an optimist. So I'd love to get a little insight behind that optimism. Just understand what brings you to this every day and what your hopes and aspirations are. I smile as you say that, and I say, um, I think I'm of myself a little bit as a pragmatic optimist. So there are no doubt days when this all feels too hard or too overwhelming. But on the other hand, every time I might find myself heading in that direction, I come across some incredible entrepreneurs, some technological innovation that gives me that little shot of adrenaline and hope that the power of human ingenuity, the power of collaboration can tackle the world's biggest problems. We have a darn good track record of getting that done with problems that we faced as a society to date. And therefore, I think if we can all come together in that common mission, we have a real fighting chance of saving ourselves 
And frankly, my view a little bit is, if I didn't do something about this, then um, shame on me. And that's what drives me, that sense of mission, but also that sense of urgency. Thank you so much to you, Marisa, and to your whole team, because I know that this is a group effort working on the study and being able to navigate these challenging times. But uh, your positivity has certainly had an impact on me, and I'm sure it has on others. It's been a real pleasure. And I also think the media has a critical role to play. So I also have to thank you because you help us get the word out. You help frame this in a way that people can embrace. So we equally are focused on partnering with those like yourselves that can help us in the shared agenda. So thanks to you as well. And therein the value of collaboration and collaborating with our audience for whom we are so grateful today for listening in. Uh, It just is left for me to thank you, Marisa Drew, Chief Sustainability Officer, Standard Chartered. Also to everyone listening, if you would like to have a copy of the Adaptation Economy Report, please go to sc.com. And as Marisa was pointing out earlier, there are lots of other assets that you can have a look at there as well. And sadly, we have to leave it there. I'd just like to thank everyone who's been a part of this podcast. Thank you. As usual, do feedback with your questions or comments. I'm Anisha Tank. Goodbye for now. Thank you for tuning in to Industries in Transition, brought to you by Standard Chartered. Supporting clients for over 150 years, Standard Chartered empowers businesses and inspires change through ambitious social and environmental initiatives. Standard Chartered, driving commerce and prosperity whilst contributing to sustainable growth across the world's most dynamic markets.